Welcome to How I Got Here. I'm Olivia Berkman. In this episode, I spoke with Regina Buckley, Chief Financial and Strategy Officer at Hearst Magazines. Regina talks about her jungle gym career path, handling disruption in media, and how her experiences in finance, strategy, and digital operations have informed her current role. Here's the conversation. Hi, Regina. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. Do you mind starting by telling me about your career path and talking about the role that you currently hold? Yes. Okay. So, um, so given my age, my career path is not a short story, but let me try and summarize it for you to the, to get to the place where I am today. So I, so first of all, I am very much a proponent of the old, you know, jungle gym school of career management versus the latter. And that definitely is reflected in the way that I, my career has evolved. I started fresh out of liberal arts college, uh, as in those days, if you were a woman and you wanted to work in media, you were pretty much going to be an executive assistant. And I was no different. So I was an executive assistant for about five years at the beginning of my career. And I, my whole career it was always a little bit of a square peg in a round hole. Like I never really felt like I was in that job that was like, oh, this is the job. This is the job. This is the, if I could have trained for a job, it would have been this one. My mom is an artist and my dad is an electrical engineer. So I sort of, you know, waver between like creative-ish pursuits, but I love rules and analytics. And so I landed in magazine media in those days, which is plain old magazines because of my college roommate's dad worked in magazines and he lived, she lived in New York and I didn't really know anyone. And he offered very kindly to help me out. So, so that was kind of where I landed. And I, you know, let's see. So I was an assistant for a while and then I started, you know, gravitating towards certain things. And I was in this role where I was doing like, I was, there's a whole science. Nobody knows this outside of the industry, but there's a whole science between what ad appears in what spot in a magazine. And so that was my job. I would just decide which I would get to choose or get to indicate based on how much people spent, et cetera, what ads went where. And I loved the puzzle kind of nature of it. And sooner or later, I got into a place where I was kind of at a at a crossroads. I needed to decide. There was no, you know, CEO of deciding where ads go in magazines. So for my own career progression, I need to sort of think outside of, you know, what I knew. And and I loved the Excel type work. I loved the analytics. And so I was like, I think I want to work in finance. And I was working at Condé Nast at the time, which was a private company that really didn't, they didn't have like sophisticated, they certainly do today, but in those days they counted ad pages like a lot of us did because they were really, really profitable. And, but I was like, I'm going to work in finance. And then I was told, well, you won't be able to work in finance unless you have an MBA. But because I, so sorry, I reached the analytics crossroads. I decided to try my luck as a salesperson. I had a great year and I hated every minute of it. And then because, but because I had been a sales, this is like, this is a testimony to the jungle gym theory. Because I had been a salesperson, I had these skills that allowed me to get into Time Inc., which then was a very like, you know, vaunted 
place to work without an MBA. I got in because I was a salesperson. And so I went into the finance department, pricing ad pages, basically deciding, like telling a salesperson, you can discount this or you can't, you can now, this is how much your page is going to cost you to go back to your client and, and tell them. And then like, so to speed up a little bit, I then spent 20 years at Time Inc., a big corporation with many, many brands. And I worked in advertising finance for seven years because I loved being close to the revenue. And then sooner or later, jobs kind of started to find me. I, I worked as a, my first job managing a PL. Um, was at Time for Kids and Time.com. I worked um, in various finance roles until at one point I was kind of plucked out of my spreadsheets to go work for the CEO as her chief of staff. We had a new CEO and I got that job and I it, it opened my eyes to the world of executive leadership and more importantly, strategy. So um, that was a one-year stint. And then I went back down the line. I held various strategy finance jobs, you name it, operation, some operational jobs until Time Inc. was finally acquired by Meredith Corporation in 2018, I want to say. And at that point, a former boss had gone somewhere else and she was at The Guardian and she invited me to go with her. And I went and I worked for her for three years in a finance and operations capacity. And then I stepped into the president role when she left. And then I was recruited here to Hearst almost exactly one year ago. So there you go. There's so many things that are jumping out at me from, you know, I was taking notes while you were talking and I, like you started an executive assistant role at one time, very early in my career. And it's interesting because you're so right that that role, um, historically you imagine sort of like a young woman in that role. And it's, it's, it can be a very challenging job and it, it's interesting because I'm thinking about you in that role and then you're in finance and you're in sales and, uh, you know, you, you talk about then being chief of staff and that kind of exposed you to the strategy side. It's so true what you said about the jungle gym. I mean, you've really like held every sort of role. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just, it's very interesting because a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this are um, on the finance accounting path and maybe a more straight and narrow path. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you think, it makes a lot of sense to me that that would make you a very well-rounded leader, um, prepared you probably well to hold a role like a president type role, mm-hmm. but how does it, how did it prepare you to be like a finance in particular mm-hmm. finance leader? Yeah. So I think there are fundamental things that have kind of been a little bit of a thread throughout everything. I would say just talking about my work and as, as an assistant, I, I think that the, the thing that I learned observing executives was that actually rules and process matter, right? And that for me, and, and look, just to back up one second and say, as much as finance is a discipline or editorial or sales or any of these things are disciplines, at the end of the day, all roles are kind of about two things, which is people and process. And for me, one of the most important aspects of my role today as a financial leader is 
well, two of the most as- important aspects are number one, making sure that everybody gets the same rules to follow, right? I like setting the rules for the organization in a way that doesn't favor certain people. And this comes up a lot in finance because they ask, because they push, because they complain. And and then on the other side, managing people because we are all human beings and success is straight up down to the way that you can motivate a team, right? Like I really, truly do believe that. Um, and so, so having that exposure at the executive level at an early stage in my career was really important throughout my finance role because I kind of learned, like I could see my bosses interacting with the people down in line, so to speak. And I would see what was affected. And I, and then I'd hear that the people would come out and talk to me about it. Or when I was a chief of staff, they used to call my office, the green room, because people would just sit there and like express anxiety or relief when they went in and out of my boss's office and their boss too. Um, and what I what I realized is that the things that caused the most frustration were when people don't get heard and they didn't feel like they were being treated fairly. And so that is important in any role, but particularly, I think, for financial professionals, we forget sometimes that we are always viewed as the man, whether we're the nicest person in the room, the most junior person in the room. If you are a finance person in that room, and especially if you're the only finance person in that room, you are re- representing the man and people will behave differently and they will expect different things of you because of that fact. That is so interesting. So true. I want to dive specifically into the move from Time Inc. to The Guardian. Um, Talk to me about what that transition was like. Um, I know Time Inc. was acquired, so maybe it wasn't necessarily exactly a, a choice. But, you know, talk to me about that whole process and what it was like once you got to The Guardian. Yeah. So um, as I said before, a former boss of mine from Time Inc. Had, was there. She was the president. And she, you know, the Guardian, my last job, at, my, here's my last job at Time Inc. It, I was the, the senior vice president of business operations for the digital um, division. I was the general manager of seven different lifestyle brands. And I was leading platform digital platform partnerships and strategy for the company. So you can imagine I was feeling a little bit burnt out. That was my, that was my remit. Um, And so when Meredith came calling and it, you know, after 20 years, I was kind of like, you know what, it's been a good run. I think I'm, I'm ready. And I, it was, it was clear to me after so many years in finance that my role was going to be one that was probably going to be redundant to other things that Meredith had. And so, um, So the thing that appealed to me about going to The Guardian is it was just one brand. And so the idea of going from managing a big piece of an enormous company to being to managing everything for a small company was very appealing. It was like the world was going to be finite, you know, and I was we were just a division of a company that whose operations were largely were based in the UK. Right. So it felt manageable and it felt like I was going to be able to take a breath. And my um, my boss at the time had a budget that was really small versus what I had been making. And I so I said to her, listen, I'll come. But but and I thought this was so smart. Um, and in retrospect, it was so dumb. I was like, I'll come. But only if you let me do the job four days a week. 
And she was for that salary, that same salary. And she was like, okay, great. And the reason, of course, it was so dumb as anyone who is listening or who has, you know, logical brain uh, is that while it was a four day a week job, the remit of the job didn't change one bit. So I basically worked a five day a week job in four days, which also had its own benefits. And my Fridays truly were my own and she was amazing and never bothered me and anything like that. But that was a little bit of a that was a, it, it, I basically set myself up to end up in the same burnt out situation that I had, that I thought I was leaving. And also like, you know, the, the thing is the scope of your job fits to, fits to accommodate the universe of what you've got. And so that job uh, was not simple. That was a company that was very much in transition that had a lot of, um, amazing opportunities and therefore a lot of, you know, presentations and asking for money and pitches and strategic plans and all of, I got my art, my, you know, I was in it all the way up to my elbows and I loved every minute of it. But, um, but at the end of it, I, I did, it was a like almost like a small company um, within a bigger company. And I, I did miss my, I did miss working for an organization as big and as varied as, as Time Inc. was. Yeah. And then tell me about going from, you know, the guardian to, to Hearst. What was that experience like? So in some ways it was very easy because it fit it. it I slipped right back into Hearst and Time Inc. are very, not exactly the same, but very mm-hmm. similar in terms of this, the portfolio of brands with a lot of creative people here. Um, we are, I mean, really the majority of my time, even at Time Inc., we were an industry in disruption. So managing through change, figuring out how to peer around corners and anticipate what's coming next. For me, um, the beauty of this role really was in that I would have a seat at the table again, being at HQ, so to speak. I'm like at the Guardian and... um, and being able to do strategy and finance officially for the company was uh, like a dream for me because I finally was a, a round peg again. Um, and and that's why I'm here and why I love this job. I truly love this job so much. And I do want to jump back for a second because I remember when you and I spoke before, when you were talking about going from time to The Guardian, you know, I, I mean, you sort of talked around this a little bit, but you were about, you were going to make less money. Right. Yeah. And, um, but you, when you and I last talked, you were, you were telling me that you were really kind of playing a long game. Um, right. So tell, yeah. So tell me more about that. So I was, okay. So this is an example where I actually, so, so as much as I say your career is a jungle gym, I do think there are moments where you need to think strategically about what's next. And mm-hmm. I had found when I was at the guardian before, when I was the CFO, before I knew that my boss had any clue that she would ever leave, never mind when she was leaving. Um, after I was there for a little bit, people started to approach me and I started to see that the, the things that people approached me about were not necessarily in line from the, with the kinds of things that I might want. And, um, sorry, when I was at Time Inc at the end, when I was being approached, um, the jobs really were smaller jobs at bigger companies. And for me, I knew that if I wanted to own something holy or be in that CFO role one day, that 
I was going to need to manage a whole PNL. And I was, you know, talking to my boss about this the other day. And she said, she was talking about another candidate who had applied for my job. And she said, but I really needed somebody who had done the job before. And so even though in scope, the CFO job at the Guardian was much smaller than the scope of the job that I had had at Timing, much, much smaller. I I owned that whole thing. So I learned about being worried about tax implications, even though I didn't oversee tax. I was worried about um, like a thousand things that I had never, oh, the first, when I first got there in a total disaster, we played, we paid sales bonuses this one week and we emptied out our bank account. And I can't, like in my, I had never really thought about cash flow before. And I came in in the morning and someone was like, you got a problem. The, 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 the London was like ringing my phone off the hook. We have a problem. The M- bank account has been emptied out and everyone's paychecks are going to bounce. <laughs> but it's like, you don't know what you oh. don't know, right? It was like my second week there. I, so, so all of that to say, it's like the stuff of nightmares, <laughs> completely. But there, there is something to that. So, so, um, although I had a solid basis in being able to do that job, the stuff that I picked up along the way was what I needed. And so, when they approached me about this job, um, I knew part of it, obviously. And as I said, it definitely was because my boss told me so. Uh, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had had that CFO title before. Right, right. Talk to me a little bit about managing multiple ty- titles because now you have, you know, you're holding basically a, a two titles and at The Guardian as well at one time. So <clears throat> what is that like for, for people who don't know, people earlier in their career? Um, how challenging is that, um, is it kind of what we imagine? What are your thoughts? Um, I think it's going to depend on the situation, but ultimately, you know, I was three months here and because my boss, the president of this division is, was the former CFO. She had my job before I did. She's highly high and was here for 10 years. She's highly numerate and she knows everything about the financials. So while my job was open, those wheels were still turning there were other wheels that were not turning while my job was still open and, and they had more to do with the strategic pieces of my job. So, you know, about three months in, um, I had, you know, been involved in the month end process, obviously, but I had, I, I wasn't feeling like I was starting to really be able to run with it on my own. And I checked in with her to say, Hey, listen, like, am I doing what you want me to be? Am I focused on what you want me to be focused on? And, um, and she said, yes, you're focused where I need you. Don't worry about the other stuff. But I find that, and it was the same thing at The Guardian. My my job was much more financially focused when I first started because there were some, some real needs in that department in certain areas. And so I spent almost all of my time managing the finances for my first, I don't know, four to six months there, really just like... I did my first journal entry in 30 years. Like I was down deep in the weeds because there were fundamental issues that needed to be sorted out. And you talked about um, doing your first PL for when you were at time for kids, right? Yeah. So yes. what was that learning curve like? Well, first of all, when I joined Time Inc. in the finance department, having come out of being an assistant, laying out mm-hmm. ads, and being a salesperson, 
uh, I didn't know what a PNL was. It was like this horrible, dirty secret that I had. I mean, in my, this is what it was like there in those days. In my first week, both of my two peers in my little department had told me independently of one another where they went to under, and of course these were all pedigree situations, where they had gone undergrad, where they went to business school and what they got on their, is it, I don't even remember, GMAT, on their, on their, business school entrance exams. And so it was an intimidating place when you didn't really, you know, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know anything about finance. And, um, and I found this, there was another stage in my career where I had this similar moment, which was when things really got disrupted and, and digital became more and more important. The longest time it was like there were digital people and there were print people. And I was a print person. And then like stepping over this whole, like, oh my God, they're going to find out that I don't know what fill in the blank means. And in both cases, I found a sympathetic, I just found someone who I felt I could trust and, um, and just started asking them questions. When I was at Time Inc. in my first digital job, there was a guy who um, I would have a weekly meeting with him and I would I would literally go through all the notes that I had taken about all this stuff and ask questions. And I found actually um, over my career while I'm on that point that being unafraid to ask questions is like one of the biggest arrows you can have in your quiver. It's a great skill to have and it will serve anybody really well, really well. Yeah. I love that. And also being able to locate the people in an organization who are sympathetic and are not going to judge you for asking the basic dumb at times questions, right? Correct. But I will tell you with the, with experience and time mm-hmm. that most people are those people, even oh, if that's they, nice. <laughs> even if they seem intimidating, you know, the care that I took not to look stupid mm-hmm. and people love to help other people and particularly people who are insecure, who may, who in my, again, in my experience, not to speak too generically, but to me, people who are insecure tend to be the ones who exhibit like the least supportive behaviors, but, um, but when you ask them for help, if you have a bad relationship with anybody, ask them to help you with something. It's, it can be transformational. You're so right. It kind of brings down those walls a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that really leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you about the role of mentorship. You talked about this person that you went to with a list of questions. Um, what role has mentorship played in your career, whether it be you as the mentee or you as the mentor? So I, so in terms of me as the mentee, the reason that I stayed so long in, uh, as an assistant is that I had a mentor who she was just an incredible executive and I learned so much from her and you know, she made me feel smart all the time, you know, and she exposed me to things and she really took me under her wing. And when, um, I finally decided I didn't want to be an assistant anymore. I moved, I'm originally from the Boston area. I was living in New York on a secretary's salary. And, uh, I was like, I can't, this is like, I can't experience any of the wonderful things about this city. I got to go, you know, be normal again for a little bit, like have a normal life where I can afford my apartment. And I went back to Boston. And in the meantime, she had gone to a couple of other places and, and 
she was working at the New Yorker and she had a role, which was like my favorite brand ever in the magazine industry. And she had a role that really suited me. Um, and she, and it was like at a regular salary and she was, she who brought me back here. Um, and then I started my career in New York at that point in time, but, um, you know, without her, I didn't, you know, there were, there was a lot that she gave me and some of it was about that job she gave me in the end, but a lot of it was really just about, um, the things that she took time to teach me just because I was willing and interested in, in listening. So she had an enormous impact on my career and on my leadership style. Um, and then in terms of, you know, mentoring myself, I am a mother of two boys and I grew up in a family of all girls and I really, uh, love mentoring women. I it makes me feel like I'm sort of, <laughs> Like I've got some kids that are like there that I can help mold and shape. And, um, and so I have a few mentees. I have just, you know, kind of picked them up over the years. And um, sometimes it's because someone asks me a lot of times it's because um, I've always crossed that finance and operational divide a little bit. So people who there's a woman who was an editor when I was at Time Inc. who was looking to understand more about the fundamentals of the business. And we actually had a co-mentoring relationship. That was really fun. She would teach me stuff and I would teach her stuff. I, you know, I had like, there were a couple of groups and that I would run. And anyway, so now I have sort of a, I don't have any um, official like, I'm not in a mentoring program, but I have, you know, I have like a little, what's the word, like team, team of mentees. A little network, like, yeah. Yeah, a little network of mentees that I talk to um, with re some with, rel with regular frequency and others with, you know, just when they need something or when I need something for that matter. What advice do you have for students and early career professionals who might be feeling overwhelmed with the career decisions that are right in front of them. So they're like super early in their career, but they probably, you know, at that age and that time, I shouldn't just say age, but at that time, it, it feel it can feel sort of crushing uh, yeah. what move you're about to make and what it's yeah. going to mean for the rest of your career. So like, how do you mentor somebody like that? Yeah. I mean, what I would say to that is kind of on the theme of what we've been talking about a lot, which is like your, your, your runway, as I like to say, is very long. And what I didn't say is my first job in media was as an assistant. But before that, I worked at on the at a phone center for the AARP fund, mutual funds at Fidelity Investments for a year, because that was the job I was offered. And my parents were like, TikTok, you need to get out of the house and, um, and function on your own. And, uh, and so what I would say is like, there's, there is a, there is so much more pressure on young people today than there was when I was young on, on outward signs of achievement, titles and money. And they talk to each other about salaries. They measure each other up. And, and I acknowledge that that pressure is really hard to bear, but as someone who who did play the long game and honestly never thought I would be. And as the senior of a role, I just always kind of kept my head down and chose things that I thought would be interesting. And 
worked hard and expressed interest in change. And like, I think those fundamental things ultimately will get you where you need to go. But like, you know, there'll be a thousand things on the way. You might have the best job in the world, but your boss is awful. You're going to hate that job. You know, you might have like a really boring job, but your boss is amazing. You're going to love that job. So there's so many, there's so many things that impact our outcomes. And I, I was reading this book the other day called Fear, Fearless or Fear Less by a woman named Pippa Grange. I highly recommend it. And what she was saying is like, we and I and I find this particularly with a lot of my mentees and people that I and women that I speak with, we feel like we're in complete control of our destiny. Meaning, if we do everything exactly right, we will, I don't know, get that fill in the blank, but like get that job. Like if I interview right and I do everything the way that I'm asked, because I always have done that and it served me well for a really long time, I'm gonna it's the outcome is going to be there for me if I did any, which means that if I don't get the job, it's because I effed it up somehow. And, you know, she talks about this concept of like, you can thumb the scale by preparing for your interview, for example, or by, um, you know, making sure you're dressed professionally and, you know, knowing all your talking points. But at the end of the day, I know now as being a hiring manager for so many years, the things that like drive how you choose who ultimately ends up with the job can be completely random. And so I do think that there is a, like I would encourage anyone who's like faced with a thousand choices and having no idea what to do. First of all, my original guidance would always be go for the, go for the one that you think has the best boss. Cause that is where you're going to, enjoy yourself the most. Um, and especially young in your career, like don't worry so much about the title and the rest of it. And kind of, you know, you have a lot of time to see where it takes you, you know, a lot of time. I love that. Go for the best boss. And that does lead me to, you know, asking about your leadership style. Um, because I'm assuming, you know, if you were, if that's advice that you would give probably uh, at different stages, you followed that advice and it worked out for you. And so I imagine you strive to be the best boss that you can be. Mm -hmm. Um, How would you describe your personal leadership style at this stage of your career? So I, um, so I am very focused on, all right, let me back up a little bit. I believe in setting high standards for people and then being there as a partner to support them in reaching those high standards that like, if I think about my management style, management of teams, I really do try and focus on measuring success by outcomes as opposed to inputs, um, because ultimately that's where our work is reflected for the benefit of the organization. Um, And I have learned through experience that best outcomes are arrived at when you have a diverse set of viewpoints around a table, but more importantly, and all of those diverse viewpoints, all of those people feel safe expressing their opinion, which is the piece that I think is often missed. So getting everybody's opinions, pulling people's thoughts and opinions out to make sure that you're trying to cover off, you know, any possible pitfalls. So that's the first thing. Second thing, straight up hard work to drive results and then kind of start all over again. Talk to me about leading a multi-generational team. So what are some of the challenges that you've encountered 
and how do you approach kind of misconceptions or misunderstandings or how is that kind of uh, shown up uh, in your teams? Yeah, I'm just trying to think because I do, you know, I'm trying to honestly like just have an honest moment with myself and think if I just like block off everything I've ever heard mm-hmm. about different generations behaving differently, do I believe they actually behave differently? I'm not sure that I do. I think ultimately everybody wants to feel heard and respected. And I think, um, I think for me, the only material difference I would say with the younger generations is they ask for raises more. I mean, other than that, I think everybody wants to come to the office and do good work. And, and, um, and I think, you know, remote work has, introduced challenges and lots of benefits too, but it's made things a little bit more complicated, I think, for the people who are, who didn't have all those years to work in office and, you know, understand how, like, how beneficial it can be to just sit down with somebody at the last 20 minutes of a meeting and complain about things, you know, um, and the bonding experience that happens through that kind of stuff. So, um, I don't know. I, I guess I would say, on, if I'm speaking honestly, I don't find that managing different. I, I think people are as different within their generations as they are between the generations. That's my own my own point of view. You talked about making the kind of transition from print to digital. So the way you described it was there were print people and there were digital people, and. And now uh, in your role, you certainly have to have one foot in each canoe or whatever that expression is. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> what has what did that experience kind of making the the you well, you didn't make a shift. You had to sort of absorb. Um, yeah, the shift made me. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> like, what were the lessons that you took away from that? Because I, I think a lot of people listening are experiencing disruption in some other sort of way, Um, you know, people in finance. And so how did you navigate that disruption so successfully? I mean, as I said before, I wish I could say that I was like, you know, so adept at what was coming and I was on top of it a whole time, but I had no choice. I had no choice. I happen to be a person who really enjoys change mostly. I mean, I don't think anyone really truly enjoys change because change when you're in it is miserable and awful and everyone's upset and it's very, very difficult. But in the abstract, it's almost like there it's a, it's a, um, it's a spectrum, right? When you're totally in it, it's miserable. In the abstract, everybody loves it. So I happen to be more the like towards the optimistic kind of love it end of the spectrum. And I would say that the way to navigate change is to accept that one of my colleagues said it this morning, um, change in the middle feels like failure, like to accept that and to um, really try and focus on where you're getting to, like, like to don't like just perseverance and which is to say you shouldn't, you know, read the signals, but understand going in that it's, it's, it, it seems like a big, Oh, we're going to transform to a digitally based company. It sounds so exciting. It is not 
fun. It is not fun in the day to day at all. And, um, and so un- approaching it with all with that level of understanding that it's not fun and people are going to be upset. And particularly again, when you're, when you're in every room representing the man, um, who's making, you know, the, who's like, ex- you know, what's the word, like executing on the plan for change. That's making people lose jobs and cutting people's budgets and, um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And my dad said to me once, you know, when I, when the disruption first started in this industry, I was talking about some project I was working on, we were cutting a ton of heads. And he said, you know, don't just make sure you're not like those bomber pilots in the war who just like would drop a bomb and fly away. Like these are people's lives. And I try and keep that in mind. It's oh, brutal. No, it's brutal. It's brutal for everyone. Everyone. It's brutal for everyone. But that has changed. That Mm -hmm. has changed. So anybody, this is the last thing I want to ask you. Anybody that's listening who's interested in um, you know, in media and even specifically in print media, uh, what do you see as like the future and and when you imagine what it's going to be like in print um five years down the road, 10 years down the road? Like, what do you see? What do you imagine? I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on out there right now that are definitely impacting the like peering around the corner side of the business. Mm-hmm. One is generative AI. Like there is no denying uh, the impact that it is going to have on all media industry, particularly the written word and 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 the graph and graphic design as well. Um I think my view on it today, and believe me, last, I don't know, September, I didn't even know what gender of AI is, so by no means an expert. It is rushing into all of our faces quite quickly. Um, But I would say that um, on that front, I think that probably our role as media companies is going to be to find a way to, to, to double down on the premium, on the like premium content side of things on the, you know, not reporting sports scores, not really in my case, but like, or like, you know, things that don't require thought to more, to adding value in more like beautiful photography that emo- that evokes emotions and, um, and, and written pieces, investigative pieces, pieces that like you're uncovering information that doesn't exist right now. So no one is taking it and wrapping it up in a tutorial for, you know, how to put on lipstick. So there's that piece. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, the, the, there was a phase in, in media where we were all very focused on in digital scale for the sake of scale. And that's why you see headlines like the one weird trick you need, like that the Google machine likes that kind of language. A lot of, if you start to see repeated language like that, you know, that's why. And I think that there is a mandate for us to start talking directly to our customers again, not exclusively, but starting to really focus on those direct relationships rather than, you know, focusing most of our efforts on, on maybe not most of our efforts, focusing a lot of our efforts on serving Google's idea of what people want, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my last question for you, Regina. I just really want to thank you for your time. And, um, I think it's, 
it's been fascinating to just hear about your kind of non-traditional path to the CFO role. A lot of people listening um, are, like I said, perhaps on more of a, a narrow uh, path or they think that they are. Um, and yeah. I think a big takeaway is to just kind of embrace uh, change and disruption and maybe don't take every role not take every role seriously, but take every decision so seriously, kind of lean into things that feel good, finding yeah. a great boss and and not uh, putting so such a tremendous amount of pressure on the title, um, yeah. especially early on, right? And Yeah, and I think most people of my generation would advise anyone that. It's a subject mm-hmm. I talk a lot about with my friends over drinks. And, mm-hmm. um, and I will leave you with one um, more anecdote on that one, which is that there was a point in my career where um, I was like CFO, COO, CFO, COO. And I was really thinking I wanted to be a COO. And I was talking to a recruiter and he said, look, you know, you want to be a COO, you could, you're in the pool. Like you can try and be a CF, COO and that, that works for you. And you're in, you're in the pool with, with the other people. But if you, as someone with operational experience, true operational experience and true strategy experience as a CFO, you're top 5%. And so not only did it serve me, I think in the end, it served me better. Yeah. So there. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. This was fun. Thanks, Olivia. 